It's that time of the year again, folks. Nominations for the Times Union Best of Contest are open. You can nominate all of your favorite Capital Region people, places, and things now through February 1st at timesunion.com slash best of 2024. I'm Jessica Marshall, and we're coming at you with another episode of our weekly podcast, The Eagle. Let's dive right in. Since November, the Times Union has been covering the fallout from the planned closure of the College of St. Rose in Albany. We've been telling stories of students and faculty reactions, of the implications for the city of Albany and the Pine Hills neighborhood, and the stories of the financial issues that led to the final decision by its board in November. We're going to start out this episode talking about one of those stories, that of Delphine Sosu. Delphine was recruited to play Division II women's soccer at St. Rose this year. She was eager to follow her dream of playing soccer professionally. This was the first step. But the journey, just to get here, has been one disappointment after the other. First, the Ghanaian citizen was forced to start her school year online, not playing soccer, thousands of miles away from Albany in Uganda where she was trying to get her F-1 visa approved to come to the States. It was denied, and she had to travel to South Africa, where she was ultimately approved. But the process took months and all of her savings. Meanwhile, she had to take all of her fall MBA classes on her phone because she didn't have a laptop. Delphine finally made it to St. Rose and hit the field running November 11th only to find out mere days later that the school planned to close. With the winter and spring soccer season canceled, Delphine Sosu was left in an almost impossible situation. Finding a school with a high-caliber soccer program that would also sponsor a student with an F-1 visa and honor the credits she'd taken thus far toward her MBA was proving extremely difficult. Times Union sports reporter Kira Santacola has been reporting on Delphine's situation. And Delphine and St. Rose women's soccer coach Lori Darling-Gathile join her now on The Eagle. So now you're here and you're going through this situation of the difficulty of having to find a place to transfer. Can you go into a little bit of, of how that's been? It's been tough, especially with the fact that most schools that were showing interest in me do not offer MBA in person. All the schools that were willing to give me offers, they do not have an MBA in person. And that's also another headache we've been battling with. And 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 um, the most important part got to with the fact that Coach Larry has been able to help me to be able to secure some funds where I can take care of the rest of the classes in summer one before the closure of the school. So. I'm very grateful for that. Right. So the school the school um, allowed you to take two extra classes, right? Two extra classes in the spring, but then you'll still need um, four cl- to complete four classes in the summer session, right? Yeah, that's it. Coach, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I think everything with Delphine uh, has been challenging you know for her and we were really excited I think that uh, she chose St. Rose because of the you know the caliber of our program 
the caliber of the MBA program, the small classes. We we never expected the challenges. I wanted to continue to support her and and not have her give up on this dream and in this opportunity. I just, you know, constantly wanted her to know that that even though it was uh, strenuous and it was really hard that we weren't going to ever give up once we got, you know, the horrible news about the future of St. Rose changing. Then it was about taking care of our players and making sure that we did everything that was in their best interest. Um, and, and we're still working with Delphine. I think we've realized that her transferring out and completing her MBA someplace else is not going to be an option because all of those schools have completely online MBAs. So they can't sponsor an F1 visa through that, which means that we had to have a, a way to get her completed here with her MBA. I just couldn't ethically accept her being in classes all fall and all spring and then not be able to finish with a degree. You know, we've had to pivot a few times here over the last month with, you know, what options are going to be best for her based on what we're uncovering with the schools that are genuinely interested in her. And regardless of what is happening at St. Rose, we still have to do what's right. And so we're um, now able to know that we're going to be able to provide her the ability to finish her MBA here. She's going to earn her degree and, and have new opportunities academically with programs. Um, and it won't be a, a you know roadblock with her F1 visa. Delphine, how important is it to you to be able to also pursue soccer? Soka, it's, you know, um, a dream and a career path that I have chosen, not just because of the passion, the joy that I, I, the fulfillment I get playing soccer. Aside that, I really want to pursue my soccer journey because I want to change the status quo. I'm from a place where women's soccer is not actually valued and not just about it being valued per se, but the development is very low and a lot of girls have passion for soccer and they are not able to pursue because they don't have opportunities. They don't have people to support them. And most often their parents do not even give them the chance to be able to go out there and play soccer or do what they love to do. So I want to serve as that role model. I want to serve as that inspiration where kids look up to and say, regardless of the circumstances, they can rise above the challenges and become what or get to the dream all the goal they really wanted to achieve in this life. Right. It's it's really important um for for them to see somebody like you achieve that, you know, to uh, live out your dream. What about your family? Have you told them yet about the school or are you still it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I have a family where they all look up to me. Being the only member of the family who has been able to attend a higher educational degree in terms of academics and my soccer career, you know, I'm here. They're happy for me. And uh, they're hoping that I'll be able to take care of them and to be able to give them a good life and 
hearing that things are not well for me out here, it's really tough for me to explain or to, you know, open up to them and say, hey, I'm not comfortably, you know, moving along as I wish or they were all hoping for me. I want them to keep the hope alive that I am here and I'm going to make them proud. So I think it's wise to just keep it to myself for now. How is it going with uh, being able to also uh, have some form of soccer at St. Rose in the spring? Is that, are you going to be able to play at all? As things stand right now, I have no idea and I'm trying to reach out to see if I have a secondary um, insurance where I could be able to, you know, go out and do something to keep my shape up. It's unfortunate. Nothing seemed to be, you know, um, possible right now. Although I kind of train in the gym a little bit. But it's soccer that I really want to play. It's not just about just being in the, in the gym, like working in the gym. But I really wish there's, there's a way to be able to make it happen. Coach, are you able to um explain any of any more details as far as what would typically be going on for the soccer, the women's soccer program at this point, had it not been um, canceled? In the Division Two model, you have eight hours in the winter. Um, four hours can be with a ball every week in a team environment, and four hours can be core strength, speed, quickness. They are being given... Patrick Madden, who is an outstanding speed, strength, quickness instructor for that component of the four hours. Um, However, with the abrupt cancellation of our program for the winter and spring for the student athletes who weren't able to transfer for January, the remaining players don't have a coach. Also, Delphine is trying to you know, inquire and get um, information back on insurance. She has her international insurance um, as a student through this college. But when you have organized practices that are through um, the athletic department, through your sport and with your collegiate coach, should anything happen, Um, with any type of injury, then you are covered with secondary athletic insurance. She doesn't have the the means if she suffers an injury and a pickup with the remaining players to put herself at risk where she wouldn't have the ability to play um, whatever's, you know, um, remaining from her first insurance for any type of injury, and and then she wouldn't have the medical care needed to continue at her next school, and, and she can't put herself at risk. So, um, unfortunately, it, it's become more difficult for the players um, that are still at St. Rose with the sports that weren't um, given the opportunity to have a winter and spring season uh, to you know, really have robust training and have what they would have normally had in any previous winter. And then in the spring, we have 15 hours a week and we could have played up to five games. So we're trying to help them navigate through that. 
And at the same time, in Delphine's case, we're trying to get additional film for her in order to send on to schools um, because they want to see her now that she's in the States. And, you know, she knows the quality of our program. She trained in the quality of our program um, for the days that she was here. We we didn't videotape practice because no one knew this was going to happen. And, and it's not something we, you know, normally have to do. I would have had great film footage for her had I had any idea that this was going to happen, but we didn't. And so now, um, you know, I only have a week to try to help her get film footage so that, you know, we can continue to help her um, in this transition process to find a new home. I've never seen you play, actually, which is I'm a little upset about, but you're a defender, right? Yeah. What is your style of defending? Like, what do you excel at, do you think? I would say my aggressiveness and the ability to pick the players up, even if um, it's becoming challenging in the game and we lose to the opponent, I want to be the one to carry the team on to keep the fighting spirit to the 19-minute class is over. You're a leader. You're aware of the GoFundMe that uh, KK set up? Kaylee yeah. Bors, how does it make you feel to know that that people are uh, care enough to do that? It's amazing feeling. Um, thinking the world is coming to an end for you, and then seeing out that hey, it's not absolutely what you think. People are people really care about you. People really want you know extend a helping hand to be able to make your dreams come true. Is there anything, Coach, that you want to add about the situation? I just like to say that, um, you know, the college has been my home for 29 years and I was given the opportunity to build a phenomenal soccer family where we embraced dreams and we believed that we could achieve greatness and we could share our love of the game and really develop incredible young women into leaders and into champions and i'm um really so heartbroken that we won't be able to continue to do that and keep our team together we're just you know, going to lose a tremendous institution for our community that has so many special programs and so many ways in which it strengthens our community. And it's just a travesty that it's being lost. And for me personally, I don't understand why it's not being fought to be saved. You can read more about Delphine Sosu and find a link to the GoFundMe that was set up for her, all at timesunion.com. We're going to take a short break now, but when we return, we are going to touch base with our Cops and Courts reporter, Rob Gavin, to go over the highlights from the trial of Kevin Monahan, who was convicted this week in the murder of 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis. Stay tuned. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. On Wednesday, a jury in Washington County convicted 66-year-old Kevin Monahan of murder in the second degree in the death of Kaylin Gillis. In April, Gillis and her friends had been driving to a friend's house in the rural town of Hebron one night when they mistakenly pulled their SUVs into Monahan's driveway. Monahan came out and fired two blasts at the cars from a shotgun. One of them caught Gillis in the passenger seat of her boyfriend's car, killing her. Times Union reporter Rob Gavin was in the courtroom for the entire trial, and he joins me now on The Eagle to go over the case. So you were covering, you, you've been covering this trial, gavel to gavel, as you do really high profile stuff. You do a lot of that around here. And this, it doesn't really get more high profile than, than what happened uh, to Kaylin Gillis last year. So I guess give us the highlights. It was definitely an emotional trial. We heard two really conflicting versions of events. We have the story that comes from the various witnesses and you have the story from Kevin Monahan himself, because he took the stand in his own defense. So basically, on the night of April 15th last year, these kids are at the home of Blake Walsh. He is the boyfriend of Kaylin Aguilas. There's about you know six or seven kids hanging out, which is what kids do on, you know, on nights. Blake Walsh, who's the boyfriend of Kaylin Gillis, gets a, a text message from a friend of theirs inviting them to a party at a friend's house about 35 miles away in the area of sort of near Salem, sort of near the, the village and town of Hebron, which is a uh, very rural part of Washington County. They go out there, takes about a half hour, and they come to what they think is the house. One of the friends thinks she knows the house because she's been there before. And the house of Kevin Monaghan, Patterson Hill Road looks remarkably like the house where this party was at, not that far away. They're both brown. They both have wraparound decks in the front. You could easily see how somebody on a dark night could mistake one for the other. So they pull up. And as these kids would testify one by one, they're outside on the driveway outside this uh, property when they like realize, hey, wait a minute, we're in the wrong location. So Kaylin Gillis is in a Ford Explorer driven by her boyfriend, Blake Walsh. There's two kids in the back. There's another SUV with two other friends. And then there's a, another friend on a motorcycle. So the friend on the motorcycle decides to say, hey, let me let me go check and see if the party's around the back. Parties can happen in the back of homes too. Comes back. The entire thing, and this is what the prosecution, which was led not only by Tony Jordan, the DA of Washington County, but the lead prosecutor on this case was his first assistant, Christian P. Morris. And what Mr. Morris had told the jury, this whole thing happened within 90 seconds. It took within 90 seconds 
of that period of time where the kids realize we're in the wrong spot and they start leaving. But that's not how Kevin Monaghan, who is on trial here, says it happened, right? Kevin Monaghan, who's, according to his testimony, watching a movie with his wife, Jinx Monaghan, is in his house. That's what he said. He's watching a movie and basically fell asleep on the movie. And what Kevin Monaghan does is he ends up taking a 20-gauge pump-action shotgun, which he has in his house, the revving of the motorcycle, somehow, someway, that's when Kevin Monaghan is under the impression, according to his testimony, that someone's outside his property. What's going on out here? He goes out with the shotgun. And this is where the two different versions of events really start to differ. According to Kevin Monaghan, he's got this shotgun and he he says, I don't know who it was. It could be, you know, marauders, bikers, that there's two SUVs. I saw one motorcycle go around. What's going on? Wasn't he like some kind of a former no. motorcycle racer or something? And he was concerned. Yes. One of the justifications, or I think it was an attempt at a justification by the defense team, which, you know, led by Art Frost and Kurt Mossert, was that because Mr. Monahan had been a motorcyclist, and this is something that's going to become, I think, very key to how the verdict came out. Because they're pushing that as a reason why, well, he knows the biker world, and maybe he thinks there's like outlaw bikers that are going to come into his house. They're coming after him. And he says the motorcycle, he wondered if that was a scout. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning that there was no testimony whatsoever to say that he had a beef with a biker gang or, or you know, someone in the, in the biker world who threatened him. We heard none of that. The defendant says that he's, he goes out on his porch and he's nervous. He's wondering what's going to happen. And he says, to begin a dialogue, that's his words, he turns around backwards, takes the gun, and fires the gun as a quote-unquote warning shot. He says a few minutes go by, and then a few minutes later, they're still there. So he's walking the gun, has the gun kind of pointed down, yet over the porch, and that as he's walking, he stumbles on nails, loses control, the gun bangs into the porch, goes off, and obviously must have hit the car. But he says he doesn't know what happened. The car pulls away. Okay, well, it looks like the problem's gone and goes back in, and, and that's that. This is very different from the witness accounts, however, according to the testimony in court. The kids in the car have a very different story. Witnesses in the area have a different story. Security cameras catch the cars going by. Everyone else says two shots, one followed by another within five seconds of each other. Not minutes of each other, five seconds of each other, which really means there's not enough time for Mr. Monaghan to then, you know, have all this going on and tripping over the nails. I mean, the story, and again, you know, that's his testimony. That's what he said. I also think that the testimony of the kids is that bullet comes in. They're like, what the hell is that? I think someone's shooting at us. And Mr. Monaghan even testified that he heard someone say, I think someone's shooting at us. But he never said, hey, it's me. What are you doing here? He never, as the prosecution pointed out, never said, hey, what's going on on the property? Get off my pre-. There's none of that. And he just fires a second shot. So that certainly raises the question of why wouldn't you ask those questions? 
We're going to get to the verdict in a minute, but I want to go back to the testimony about the gun firing accidentally for just a minute. That was like a major factor in the trial, right? And the question in this case was, where was this an accident, as his lawyer said? And his lawyer said this was a terrible accident. A big part of the defense was, did the gun work? Certainly Art Frost and Kurt Mossert, the attorneys, were adamant about the fact that this gun was, in their view, defective. So, yeah, they claim this is a weapon that can fire by itself. Gotcha. And it's and that this this weapon can fire without the trigger being pulled. And their their quote unquote smoking gun to prove this argument is that when the state police expert tested the gun, Victoria O'Connor, who's a forensics scientist and a supervisor for the state police and a prosecution witness, they're saying that when Ms. O'Connor tested the gun. One of the times that she uh, dropped this gun, it went off. And that's true. But what was also true is that they characterized the, the gun as defective and not working. And Ms. O'Connor said the gun was not defective. She said that after that happened on one of the tests, she did about seven other tests and it didn't happen again. That was just one time that it happened. And, but he's not charged with intentionally firing at them. He's charged with showing a depraved indifference. So then when the jury was sent into deliberation, there was a change in what they could consider based on the charges, right? So can you explain that a little bit? That's kind of confusing. Yeah. So Kevin Monaghan was facing a charge of second degree murder. There's different kinds of second degree murder. The most conventional one is for intentional murder. He wasn't charged under that theory of second degree murder. He was charged under a theory of second degree murder, what they call depraved indifference murder, which is you showed a depraved indifference to human life. Like there's a grave risk and you not only ignored it, you didn't care. Hmm. Um, and, and, and you just went ahead anyway and someone dies from your actions. That's what he was charged with. And okay. second degree murder carries 25 years to life in prison. He was also charged with Reckless endangerment, which is a felony that carries up to seven years in prison, also charged with tampering with evidence. He was accused of um, basically covering up the crime, yeah. uh, wiping away DNA and other other evidence uh, to keep police from finding out about it. Right up to the end, those were the charges. But defendants have the option of asking a court to allow a jury to consider lesser included offenses. Manslaughter two, five to 15 is the max. But the jury had the option. They could have they could have come back and said, we think he's guilty of manslaughter two, but not murder. The difference in those charges, manslaughter two means you recklessly caused someone's death. And in doing so, you ignored what they would call a substantial risk to human life and the person died. Recently, the um, the operator or the former operator of the limo company that, uh, you know, of the Schoharie limo, Nauman Hussein, he was convicted of manslaughter too. For reference, that is, you know, how you see those differences play out in court. That's a really good example. I mean, Dennis Drew, another case, five to 15, he's already out. So when you consider the fact that Kevin Monaghan is 66 years old, this is a really a life or death type situation. I mean, there's no guarantee five to 15 that he makes it out, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but the end result is that he's going to be bearing a successful appeal. He will be serving the rest of his life behind uh, bars. 
So the jury had the ability to consider the lesser charges. However, they came back with a guilty verdict on the original charges, the murder too. What was the reaction in the courtroom? I could see the father of Kalen Gillis. He see his eyes seemed seemed to well up. He seemed uh, certainly relieved, uh, which is what the family attorney said. You did see emotions. You saw hugs. I think I saw um, some of the kids there hugging each other. It's for them, obviously, this is a degree of justice in, in a case which unfortunate truth is that nothing is going to bring back their friend. But at the same time, um, the person responsible for that, for that is now been held accountable by a jury and now facing life in prison. What happened after court adjourned? Did the family say anything? The family didn't give any statement, although um, the family's attorney did. And I spoke to Donald Boyajan. You know, really, they, they said basically that they're relieved, but he still lost his daughter that's not you know lost upon them that it's still a sad time right. um yeah what did what did the prosecutor say what did tony jordan say the da the da was very thankful of the jury his court staff but he made an interesting comment at the start of his of his words to the to reporters that kevin monahan and jinx monahan included the wife as well he said basically you know uh wrecked a tremendous amount of damage emotional uh, uh, damage on people for their actions that night. They were very focused in their closing argument. One of the things Christian Morris really harped on is he said, you know, they were on his property outside his house, his driveway, and that's why he fired that. It's all about the fact that this this one person didn't want people on his driveway, and that's why he fired at them. And I think the jury ultimately found that that's what happened, that this was a case of an egregious act, a case that, you know, was the equivalent of intentional murder. As always, head over to timesunion.com or to any of our social channels, that's Facebook, Threads, Instagram, and YouTube, to read more about everything that we discuss on this podcast. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll be back again next week with more from inside the newsroom. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Kira Santacola and Rob Gavin for their contributions to this episode. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertore. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child 
that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts.